And let's pray as we come to it this morning. Oh, Father, we do pray that as we are in this place this morning that we would hear you speak to us. We know that what is required is that we respond in faith and that your Spirit is working. So we pray that you would give us this morning eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would truly speak to us by your word and according to your spirit. And that we would know, that we would know that we have heard from you. In Christ, the living word's name we pray. Amen. In Matthew chapter 6, this morning we're looking at verses 9 through 14. This is the holy and errant word of God. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. J.C. Ryle once said, prayer is the most important subject in practical religion. All other subjects are second to it. I think if we were to do a poll this morning of the congregation of you that are gathered here this morning and said, what is the most important thing to practice in the Christian life? A prayer would probably be one of the top things that we would say, along with reading the Bible and attending corporate worship. I think if there was a second poll, and that poll was, what is it in the Christian life that causes the most sense of guilt in you? Prayer would also probably be at the top of that list. And so it comes as no surprise that Jesus here teaches about prayer. And see, he's talking to his disciples about what the Christian life is to look like, that he comes to this, he comes to prayer. We saw last week that when Jesus begins to talk about prayer, he takes it for granted that you and I, as disciples of Christ, will pray. He doesn't say if you pray, he rather says when you pray. But how do we pray? How do we do it? It's interesting that in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 11 of that Gospel, before Jesus gives the instructions on the Lord's Prayer, that the disciples come to Him first. And they say to Jesus, they say, Lord, teach us to pray as John's disciples taught, or as John taught his disciples to pray. They want to know how to pray. 
And so that's why Jesus launches into the Lord's Prayer there in Luke chapter 11. The disciples know that part of the disciples' life, part of the Christian life, part of following Christ is that you'll pray. But just like John's disciples don't know how to pray, so the disciples following Jesus don't know how to pray. And so John teaches his disciples, and so Jesus teaches his disciples, and so he teaches us this morning. If you feel like you don't know how to pray, you're in good company. John Newton, the writer of the famous hymn Amazing Grace, once wrote a letter I was reading this week. He wrote a letter to another Christian, and he was talking in that letter about how most Christians have the good intention to pray. And to be a person of prayer, and yet it often just remains a good intention. And in that letter he says, we know that we have a Heavenly Father. We know that our Heavenly Father has given us as this duty, prayer. He also, we also know that He has given it to us as a delight. We know in our minds that it's a privilege. We know that it's quite an honor to be able to pray. We're quick to tell others about prayer. We're quick to instruct others in prayer. When someone else comes to us and they're racked with anxiety or guilt or, or struggle, we encourage them to pray. We know that prayer gives us a glimpse of heavenly things. We know that one hour spent in prayer is better than a whole week's worth of conversations with the most godly man or woman. And yet, we struggle to pray. As Newton says, we would be glad of a just excuse to omit it. And the chief pleasure we derive from prayer is that moment that it ends. And I think probably most can agree. Praying is just a struggle. It's a struggle for the most godly man or the most godly woman among us. Newton, in that letter, it, he says that he thinks part of the struggle, at least in this life, and why it is such a struggle even for the godliest of Christians, the best of disciples, is that it's so we might know our own weakness and our own frailty. So that even in prayer, we might be weaned from ourselves to be too confident in ourselves. We might lean more upon Jesus. In a very odd kind of way, our weakness in prayer should lead us to pray even more. Because we see how frail we are. How dependent we are. How in need we are. Having said that, we need to make it clear, though, that the best of Christians do engage in prayer. God's people are praying people. How does a mature Christian become a mature Christian? Some stagnate in the Christian life. Some neither seem not to get past the milk that they are on ever to get to solid food. There is little progression in their Christian faith. And yet others seem to shine more with love and with holiness year after year. You look at some people and you know that they've grown in Christ from last year. It's, it's just observable. You can't quite put your finger on it. But they're more godly. 
They look different. They sound different. They act different. How does that happen? I don't always know why or how that happens. But I do know that I've never met a mature saint who wasn't also a great man or woman of prayer. The two go hand in hand. Is it the cause? No. God's grace is the cause. But God works through prayer. It is an ironclad guarantee that any mature Christian is also a person of personal prayer. There's no example of a godly person in Scripture who wasn't a praying person. And neither can you and I think of a mature Christian in this congregation or or any other who isn't a praying person. We don't want to be people who speak more about God than speak to God. We want to grow as prayers because we want to commune with our God. We want to know our Father more intimately. We want to dwell with our Savior more readily. We want to look more like Him. And so we want to grow in prayer. How? How do you grow in prayer? Well, I think you do the same thing that the disciples do here. You just turn to Jesus and you say, teach me. Help me. Grow me in prayer. He does. Jesus here gives us instruction. We have come to call this the Lord's Prayer, but in reality, it's really the disciples' prayer. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. He says, Pray then like this in verse 9. He's informing, he's setting the agenda for our prayer lives. Do you want to learn to pray? Jesus is saying, Then you take a look here. Listen to me here. The Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, I think can be divided into three sections. First, we have God's name. Second, our needs. And third, God's protection. So, first, God's name. Second, our needs. And third, His protection. Let's say at the very beginning, as we launch into the Lord's Prayer, that this is a model prayer. It's meant to teach you and I how to pray. It's not meant to be something that we just mechanically go through, that we just parrot. I think it's fine and it's right and it's even something we should do like we did this morning where we pray the Lord's Prayer together, but it's not something we're to do mindlessly. It's not as if it is some kind of magical prayer that if you and I parrot it, it is is a prayer, and it's an answered prayer, and it's a prayer that grows us, and it's a prayer that accomplishes God's will. There's no such thing as a mindless prayer. The mind and the heart are to be engaged in prayer. Formality has no place in prayer. If our heart is not engaged, it doesn't matter what our tongues say. If we're not dwelling with God in prayer, our prayers are not reaching God. So it's no mistake that Jesus at the very outset of this model prayer where He's teaching you and I to pray, that the very first thing that He does is He focuses us upon God. 
Our prayers begin with focusing on God. Or at least the majority of our prayers should begin by focusing on God. We're caught up with Him and we're giving Him praise and adoration for who He is. Now, of course, there are prayers when you and I are running into something and we just often, we just offer up a quick intercession and a quick prayer asking for whatever the need is that's before us. And there are right prayers where you and I have just committed a sin and so we just immediately offer that up before the Lord and confess that sin. But the majority of our prayers, the majority of our prayer life should begin with God. Should begin with praise and adoration of Him. I would guess that most or much of our prayer lives center upon self instead. And God only comes in when it's His part to play. We make our request to Him. He needs to answer that request. In effect, our prayers are I and then God. But as we pray, God is to be the center of our prayers. It's good when our prayers are more God and me than I and then God. God and me. I begin by focusing on Him, on who He is. And so Jesus does that at the very beginning of this model prayer. He focuses us, as we saw last week, on the fact that God is our Father. Our Father. And you and I can draw near. But He's a God of love to you as a child of His. That there's intimacy here, that you can cry out to Him. That you're welcome, that there's no condemnation here. Just gentle love here for His children. But even as we draw near to Him as Father, that intimacy that is there, then Jesus immediately, our Father who art in heaven. That is, don't lose the fact that He is wholly different from us. That He is Creator and we're creation. That He is holy and we are not. That He is sovereign and we are not. So you draw near to Him with confidence, but you draw near to Him, giving Him the praise and the adoration that He's due. Hallowed be Your name, Jesus prays. It's the first petition in the Lord's Prayer. That God's name would remain undefiled in our speech and in our conduct. That His name would be hallowed. That it would be honored. That is, we are praying that in everything that we do, in everything that we are, that God would be glorified. In a very real sense, it's much like the answer to the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We're praying that man's chief end, my chief end, Lord, the chief end of all of creation is to give you glory. And that's what we're praying at the very outset of the Lord's Prayer. That's not a small prayer. God would be glorified in everything. Father, use me as your servant in speech and in conduct to give glory to your name in everything that I do. It's a right focus as we enter into prayer. And it's right that Jesus begins there because that focus in prayer then gives shape to all the rest of what we would pray. 
Not my will, but your will. Not my glory, but your glory. Not my honor, but your honor. Not my praise, but your praise. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As we look through the Gospel of Matthew, this idea of kingdom is central. We've seen that as we've gone through these first six chapters, and we will see it even more as we get into the later chapters, that the kingdom of God is at the very forefront of Matthew's mind, and it's also at the very forefront of Jesus' mind. And he's telling us in this model prayer that it's to be at the forefront of our mind, God's kingdom. There's that uh, wonderful scene in Revelation 11 where the seventh trumpet is sounded. And as that seventh trumpet is sounded, there is a refrain that echoes throughout the heavens when the angels begin singing and they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. It's the kingdom, the kingdom of Christ reigning forever and ever, all the world His. And immediately after they erupt in that song, John says that then all of the angels in heaven, they just fall on their face and they worship Him. All the elders, they fall on their face and they worship Him. I wonder... That scene ever occupies our prayers. Does that occupy your prayers when you pray? Oh, Father, I desire to see that kingdom present here. That kingdom come here. Jesus instructs that it should. We're praying to See that moment realized on earth. Disciples of Christ desire to see God's kingdom fulfilled in this world. And that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And how is it done in heaven? It's done perfectly. That's what we want to see here. His will done perfectly here. Here in this prayer, we find a reminder that we are active participants in God's working out His will here on earth. Do you know that? That your life, no matter what ditch it has fallen into, no matter what rut it is in, it has meaning. Because God uses your prayers to accomplish His will and establish His kingdom on earth. That's purpose. We look with an eye of hope that God will work. We look around and we say, this is my Father's world. And I want to see that more readily present. It's easy to forget in the busyness of changing diapers and mowing the grass and paying utility bills and doing homework. That this is what it's all about. 
That my pursuit day in and day out, your pursuit day in and day out, that this is what it's about. His kingdom being spread throughout this world. That this is the great end of all of history. This. So we're to pray about it. Now, the kingdom is present. It's not just coming. It came as the king came. When the king came, the king ushered in the kingdom. But as theologians says, say and often use refrain that you will hear, it is here but not yet. It's here. Christ's kingdom is here. It's within us. But it's not yet. It's it's not driven all the evil out of this world. It hasn't wiped away every tear. It hasn't established peace in every corner of the earth. But that day's coming. And we're to pray for it to be ushered in more and more. Does that occupy our prayers? I wonder if that occupies your prayers as you head into an election week. Does that occupy your prayers? Casting our vote on Tuesday seems more important than the prayers that we utter on Tuesday morning. God help us. If we have spent more time thinking over the last weeks and conversing about the upcoming election this week than praying for God's kingdom, then God help us. Is it His kingdom that occupies our minds? Or is it the kingdoms of this world? Our kingdoms. His will above every will is what Jesus is teaching us to pray. It's how He begins the prayer. It challenges and instructs, doesn't it? It forces us to examine our own prayer lives. What do I pray for? What occupies my thoughts? What occupies my mind? What occupies my prayers first and foremost? Is it this? Is it God's will? Is it His kingdom? Is it His glory? Is it His honor? Is it His praise? You know, if you and I, just think about this the other day, if And I was chiding myself. But if we can accomplish what we've set before us in the day without passionate, personal, pleading prayer, then it's inconsequential. If I can go through my to-do list and my task list for the day and accomplish it apart from prayer, then it is meaningless. we're seeking to accomplish God's mission in this world. And that means that we need God's help, which means that we must seek God in prayer. The story is told of five young college students that were in London for a night on a Saturday night, and they decided to go to Uh, on Sunday morning to hear the renowned and famous preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
And they got there early to the church there in London, and a man met them at the door while they were standing outside waiting for the doors to open, and they didn't know it, but it was Spurgeon. So Spurgeon said to those five young men, he said, gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you like to see the heating plant of the church? Five young men remarked later that they weren't very interested in seeing the heating plant of the church. It was July and it was hot. Uh, But they didn't want to be unkind to this elderly man that wanted to show them around. And so they agreed. And so Spurgeon took them down a flight of stairs and then he opened a door quietly he whispered to them as he opened the door, he said, this is our heating plant. And the five students said they were surprised when the door opened because there were 700 people on their knees praying for the services that were going to happen that morning. I think, you know, we often celebrate someone like a Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but his ministry meant nothing if there weren't 700 people praying for his ministry. God accomplishes His will and His purposes, His kingdom purposes in this world through our prayers. You can be part of some of the most monumental work in this world. Eternal things by being a praying person. The second section moves to the personal needs of prayer. Our needs is our Father, and so He doesn't just care about His name, but He cares inextricably, almost unbelievably about our needs. This can easily be taken for granted, I think. We Forget what an incredible blessing this is. We think almost that it's part of God's job description that He needs to care about our needs. That's just because of the Christian's faith, its influence in our life. You think about all of these other religions that have existed in the history of the world. You had to convince God to be concerned about your needs. You had to offer the right offering. You had to somehow curry His favor. You had to somehow gain His attention. You had to somehow make it in His interest to care about your need. But not our God. He's a Father. And so He cares. You don't have to convince Him. of a Father in heaven who loves to hear the needs of His children. And he absolutely desires and loves to relieve those needs and provide for us. There are two realms of needs that Jesus highlights in the prayer, our physical needs and our spiritual needs. We're to make them known to God. There are some Christians who are good at praying for other people, but they are reluctant to pray for themselves. Maybe that's because we don't like asking for help, and this just seems like the uber asking for help. But Jesus instructs you, instructs me, to make our personal needs made known to God. We're to pray for ourselves. Why? Because it gets at the very heart of prayer. 
Prayer is a bold declaration that we are dependent upon God. A prayerful person is a person who recognizes that they have nothing apart from God. When a a baby cries for its mother's milk, it's it's a sign of dependence. In the same way, so is prayer. When you see a, a family walking down the street in front of you on a sidewalk and you're walking behind them and, and you're approaching a corner and you get to that corner, what does that little girl do almost instinctively before they get ready to cross the street? She lifts her hand up and she goes groping after her father's hand. And that outstretched Hand is a a sign of dependence. I I need your care. I need your protection. I need your provision. And once that hand is safely and securely within the Father's hand, that child just walks across that street without fear, without anxiety. Where the hand goes, the body follows. It leads. And so with prayer, we reach out to our Heavenly Father and He grasps a hold of us and there is provision, there is protection, there is a relief of anxiety, there is strength, there is courage to go forward. Where the prayer goes, the body follows. He leads. Jesus says we are to pray, give us. It's a bold request, give us can request boldness from our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, he cares about our physical needs. And I'm so thankful Jesus instructs us to pray this way because I think surely we would have made prayer more spiritual than Jesus himself if he hadn't. We would have been prone to tell one another, don't pray about physical things, only pray about spiritual things. You belong to a spiritual kingdom. She says, no, no, no. Your body and soul, your bodily needs matter even as your spiritual needs matter. And yet, even though Jesus instructs us in this way, there are still people that have ripped this text apart. And they said that what Jesus is praying here, when he says, pray for your daily bread, he's actually talking about the Lord's table. No. And then others say, well, he's not talking about the Lord's table. He's actually talking about that eschatological supper, that that Lord's supper, that, that feast that we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth as we're around the banqueting table of the Lamb. No. He's telling us to pray for our physical needs. He's relieving the burden. And we just want to heap it back on. No. He says, your body and soul. I care for your body. Your father cares for your body. So pray for your needs. That's why we pray before we eat a meal. A reminder that though we may have worked for it, though we may have purchased the food, though we may have grown the food, though we may have prepared the food, it's a gift from God's hand. We are in need, and He supplies our every need, our physical need. Without Him causing that seed to grow, or that rain to come upon the earth, or 
the bugs not to eat that harvest or that farmer to be able to get it to the supermarket or those aisles to be filled or you and I even to have the ability to swallow or to earn the income to purchase it, that it would not be ours. We're wholly and utterly dependent for our every physical need upon Him. So we pray. You ask Him directly. You ask Him simply what you need. You don't beat around the bush. Jesus says we are to pray this way daily. He doesn't encourage us to pray for tomorrow. He encourages us to pray for today. And we are dependent upon Him each and every day for what we need today. He's having this conversation this morning. It is so easy for you and I to get caught up in tomorrow. And we'll ruin today because we're worrying about tomorrow. And we'll ruin tomorrow by worrying about the next day. And we'll ruin that day by worrying about the day after that. She says, no, 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 no. Just pray for today. What you need for today. The concerns of today. And he meets those today. It's an echo of that prayer in Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Don't give me too much, God. And I get this independent mindset. Don't give me either too little, God. That I'm prone to complain against you. Just give me what I need today. Not only though are we to pray for our physical needs, we're also to pray for our spiritual needs. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And here we're asking God to forgive our sins. The petition, I think, needs to be joined with what Jesus says there in verses 14 and 15 where he says, for if you Forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. There are many that I think make a misreading of this text and they say, well, unless you and I forgive others their sins, God will not forgive us our sins as if you and I have some kind of causal relationship with God and the forgiveness of our sins. That's just silly. That makes us out to be God. and We are then in control. That's not Jesus' point. Rather, Jesus is making it clear that if we refuse to forgive others, we demonstrate that we've not experienced the saving forgiveness of God. A Christian knows what a gift God's forgiveness is. We know what that forgiveness cost. And as those forgiven, we extend that forgiveness. As John Stott said, once your eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If on the other hand we've exaggerated the view that we have of others' offenses against us, it proves we have minimized our own. And so Jesus is commanding us to ask for forgiveness daily. Seek God's forgiveness daily for the sins that we've committed.
I find it personally a good practice as I lay down at night and before I fall asleep to rehearse my day. To think through my day and think through, okay, where did I sin today and what haven't I asked for forgiveness for? And not as some kind of morbid introspection, but rather because I need to be reminded that I am a sinner before the face of God, and then I need to be reminded that His grace is given to me. You confess your sins before you fall asleep. That's a good way for a good night's sleep. His forgiveness is yours if you're in Christ. Much of the guilt that we carry around would dissipate if we just daily ask for forgiveness. I think we would have a lot more joy in the Lord if we but daily ask for forgiveness. We but know more the freedom of Christ if we but daily ask for forgiveness. I think also many of our relational conflicts would disappear if we but daily ask for forgiveness. Because we'd be forced to look into the mirror and see the reflection back as of a sinner. And that would remind us of God's grace given to us. And that would remind us that we are desperately in need of that grace. And so we would be prone to extend that grace more readily to others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus wants us to recall that to mind day in and day out. He has that as a great aim in our praying our daily prayers. So we've seen God's name, we've seen our needs, and now in the prayer, He gives us instruction about seeking God's protection. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Talk through a couple of things first. You'll notice here, both in Matthew's account, also if you turn over to Luke's account in Luke chapter 11, you won't see what we often close, our praying the Lord's Prayer together with. You won't see that doxology that we prayed this morning, for thine is the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. That's because the oldest manuscripts of both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, they don't contain that text. Now, there's some very early manuscripts that do. And I think can judge from that that it was probably added in by scribes that were copying the text later, but we don't know for sure. It's very clear that in the New Testament world and in the Old Testament world that a prayer was almost always ended with a doxology. And so I have absolutely no problem praying that part of the prayer as we pray because it seems right and it seems good that as we began focusing upon God in prayer, so we end by focusing upon Him in prayer. That as we began in adoration, so we end in adoration. The second issue we must tackle is the word evil. In the Greek, that word evil can mean evil or it can mean the evil one. And so some have understood this as this is a reference to Satan and that we are praying that God would keep us from Satan, keep us from the evil one. 
But I think we are praying for much more than that. We don't want to just be kept from the evil one, and that isn't just Jesus' prayer. When he instructs the disciples to be on guard, as he goes off to be watchful and on guard, he's doing that against all temptation, against all sin, against all evil. And so I think he's instructing us the same here, that we are praying that we would be on guard against all evil, that we'd be kept from all evil. It's not a petition that God would keep us from everything that's hard or everything that's difficult or everything that might make life unpleasant. But rather, what we're praying here is that we wouldn't fall into some kind of temptation, that we wouldn't fall into some kind of evil circumstances where we cannot endure and where we would give in, give in to sin. John Owen once said, if we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. And so we pray this. We we pray, Lord, keep us from temptation. Keep us from all evil. Keep our lives. Because as a Christian, as a son, or as a daughter of the Father in heaven, we want to commune more closely with Him. We want to know Him more intimately. We want to gaze upon His beauty more fully. And we know that giving in to any sin, any evil, is like a cloud that that shrouds the heart and just keeps some of those radiance of His glory from shining in. So keep us from it, God. And so we rightfully end, for Thine is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. We want to be a people of prayer. We want to grow in that prayer. And yet, it's a struggle. And I think, I know that every one of us, this will be a lifelong pursuit. Until we pray that final prayer on our deathbed, we'll be seeking the Lord, asking Him to help us to grow in prayer. It's just a struggle. And yet, I would remind you of this. That though our prayers may be poor, our intercessor in heaven, who is at the right hand of the Father, He makes them rich. And though our prayers may be weak, our intercessor makes them strong. And though our prayers are feeble and frail, He makes them effective. And though our prayers may be tainted with sin, even sin, our intercessor makes them pure before the Father's throne. And so we keep praying. And we keep praying that His will would be done in us and in this world for His glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I truly want your name hallowed in our lives, in our speech, in our conduct. We want your will be done on earth in the same way that it is in heaven perfectly. I 
We pray that you would give us today our daily bread, what we need physically, that you would meet the every need that we have. We pray that you would meet our needs spiritually, that you would forgive us our debts even as we forgive our debtors. And oh, Father, would you protect us? Would you lead us not into temptation? Oh, Father, keep us from evil. Because thine is the power. You have the ability. We want to give you the glory. Forever and ever. That is our prayer. And teach us to pray it more and more. Pray in the strong name of Christ, our intercessor at your right hand. Amen.